I, I think we have a choice: either get get busy living or get busy dying. And I think the more advantageous one is to get busy living. Hi, this is Michael C. Patterson, and this is the Mind Ramp podcast. I recently had the opportunity to chat with Dr. Jeffrey Darling, a young neuroscientist who has expertise in neuroscience, neuroimmunology, and neuroinflammation. Jeff got his PhD in neuroscience from Tulane University and did a postdoctoral fellowship at the University of Texas in Austin. He currently works for Life Molecular Imaging, an international company which seeks to improve people's therapeutic outcomes and quality of life through early detection of chronic and life-threatening diseases. Jeff's research interests have circled around sex differences in learning and memory, decision-making, and cognitive function, and in the process of aging. In this episode, we focus on our discussion about aging. I was curious about how a young student of neuroscience becomes interested in the process of aging. And I wanted to hear Jeff's thoughts about the nature of aging and what we can do to age as successfully as possible. How did you get interested in, in neuroscience? What was the, were there, was there anything that really triggered your, your curiosity? Yeah, I think that's a, a great question. And I think often academics, that's what we, after a decade or two, we look back and think, how did I get where I was? <laughs> right. um, so, so the long story short is I was, uh, I was in a learning and memory class that I was just taking as an elective at mm. Tulane University. I did my undergraduate and graduate career at Tulane in New Orleans. And Jill Daniel was the professor and, and, and it was an interesting class. She was talking about sex differences and learning and memory and, and mm. the capacity to measure things like uh, uh, learning and memory with, within animals and in humans. And I remember at the very end of a class, she said, hey, if anyone's interested in research, if you're thinking about med school or if you're thinking about law school, having research on your resume is, is a boon on your applications. So mm. think about it. And then I walked up to her after class and said, hey, I don't know anything about research. I don't know what you do, but it sounds like a good gig. So sign me up. And you know, <laughs> she kind of brushed me off and said, hey, you got to know a little bit more about my lab than that if you're going to try and work for me. So, but, but you know, do well in my class and we'll see what happens. And I ended up, I think, getting 100% on the next test, thankfully. Uh, otherwise, she probably would have said no. Right, right. <laughs> but she invited me into her lab, and and I think the rest was kind of history. In, in my mind, gold was struck. I, mm. I fell in love with the entire research paradigm, the idea that you can reach out into the ethers and pluck a question that no one's ever asked before, and then someone will pay you to some degree, not that much often, <laughs> but pay you to some degree to answer that question. Uh, yeah. I was hooked, and I think that was in 2008, so 14 years later, and, and in some mm. capacity, I'm, I'm still working with people to put out publications. I'm still enjoying research with LMI and, and still getting to learn on a daily basis, which I think if you can pick a career that lets you learn every day, you've picked a good one. That's that's great. Were you, were you interested in science throughout your, your earlier uh, education? Growing up, I, I think whether I realized it or not, yes. I was the kind of kid who uh, would be reading and reading and reading off mm. by myself. Uh, we moved a lot when I was much younger. So as a result, books were my friends. Uh -huh. uh, so my parents trying to foster that they would give me a toy microscope where I would, you know, mm -hmm. dissect leaves and look under the, the lens. Mm -hmm. But 
I think originally, so I grew up in Idaho. Originally, my real interest was in uh, environmental law, go figure, which is nothing like what I do now. So huh. we always thought I'd be a lawyer. And then, I, you know, I got to Tulane and, and things changed. But uh, I think there was a, a little scientist in me early on, but I uh, didn't realize it until undergraduate. Yeah. Well, it's great that you're doing something that you're having fun at. That makes, yeah. makes work so much easier. So you got interested in aging in particular, and the how, how, why aging? How did you get interested in aging? So the lab that I joined, Jill's, uh, Dr. Daniel, uh, mm-hmm. specialized in a couple of things. She specialized in just overall sex differences and learning and behavior. She specialized in the impacts of steroid hormone exposure, so androgens, androgens, and how that impacts development of the brain across the lifespan as well as in menopause. So she looked at postmenopausal models for hormone mm. therapy. Uh, so often, so when women go through menopause, they drop to, I think, about one ninth the level of their natural production of estrogen. And that impacts um, both your risk for things like dementia onset, mm. as well as learning and memory. And so her interests aligned along with the aging process. And I think there's a few things that are as universal across the world than aging and so it's something that's easily seeable and applicable in in our lives and and so that just made it easy to fall in love with that kind of study as well how do you define aging you know it it can be chronological which tells us something but uh, when we talk about biological aging or neurobiological aging that gets more interesting i think so so What's going on when we are aging? Right. I think I think that's one of the magic questions that, <clears throat> that scientists everywhere are still trying to mm-hmm. figure out. And I think if you ask every scientist who says they're an expert on aging, they will probably give you a slightly different answer. Right. Uh, in my mind, aging is a natural process. Uh, with with few uh, exceptions, organisms age, um, but there are differences in aging. Right. So. One could categorize aging as mutations that happen when cells divide that might be happy little accidents or they might lead to cancers or the development of malignancies, um, errors in in replication. And, and in one sense, that's a form of aging. As we get older, that happens more and more often and, and to somewhat negative results. But then there's also examples of healthier aging when you're comparing populations. So let's say someone with Alzheimer's disease aging at 65 versus someone without Alzheimer's disease, those aging paradigms are going to be fairly different from each other. So in my mind, it's an inescapable paradigm, one of which to the best of our abilities, we can slow and we can do as healthy as possible. But um, until we get to the level where we we can uh, better adapt to those changes that happen naturally, um, Aging is just a natural process of life, for good and for worse. Yeah, the the idea of being able to slow down that process is is clearly something that that I have been very interested in because I think it's um, you know clearly we can slow it down. People age differently, and uh, but going back to, I mean, part of what you were saying was was that there is just the natural sort of wear and tear that happens. To the body. Am I correct in, in characterizing it that way? 
Yeah, I think that's a good way of thinking about it. Over, over time, as, as you grow or you break a bone or c- cells repair themselves or are uh, eaten up in phagocytosis, we, you know, whatever method, our bodies are constantly changing and evolving. And with that, mm-hmm. uh, wear and tear is kind of a byproduct. And, and eventually that wear and tear starts to wear down kind of like, you know, the tires on a car and that without the grooves, you're running on a flat surface. And and I think aging is just an example of inescapable wear and tear to some degree, and you can slow it down. And I think there's a gold mine in there. If if you ask angel investors how to slow down or reverse aging is probably the trillion dollar number. I keep reading all these reports about billionaires who are just putting an awful lot of money into trying to, I guess, figure out how to stop their own aging. Yeah. Well, if any of them are listening, I'm happy to take your money and and, and tell you, you look as young and beautiful as you want. (laughs) And that might be as effective as where the money's going elsewhere. One of the areas that I think is very important that that you have an interest in is neuroinflammation. Can you describe the difference between, say, inflammation when you cut yourself and you get inflamed around there, you know, why that is useful and why systemic inflammation is not useful, why why it's harmful? Um, I think that's an excellent way of framing it and that they are two similar but also dissimilar processes. And that when you cut yourself, you want immune cells to rush in. You want them to fight off whatever invaders are mm-hmm. are existing and persisting in that particular area. And 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 just like in more dangerous inflammation, that too can have some negative repercussions. Mm-hmm. And that if you have too much of an inflammatory response, often you have a second wave of tissue loss. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so think of a stroke, for example. If you have a stroke, you have that initial infarct where you have cell death. And then often you have a second region outside of that initial area where you see some neuronal loss as well. And so inflammaging is great. It's beneficial. It's necessary. How your immune system functions is its own special miracle, but anything to the nth degree can be negative. And and with systemic aging, uh, so there's actually a term and, and, you know, I don't know how I feel about it necessarily, but there's a term inflammaging, uh, which is that as you age, you see this increase in inflammatory response to similar insults that someone uh, younger might have. COVID being a perfect example, I think, in that uh, elderly populations might have a much greater inflammatory response mm-hmm. to COVID versus someone who's 22 or 23. And as a result, uh, that carries negative consequences of maybe some increased cell death or increased um, edema that you wouldn't otherwise see in a younger population. And, and often this is carried about by, by cells within the brain. So microglia, uh, for example, that are um, carry about an inflammatory response. Uh, there are brain's innate immune cells. And with aging, sometimes there's a priming effect and that microglia become hyperreactive. They prune away, they eat up whatever this inflammatory agent would be. And as a result, there might be an increase in neuronal loss or a increase in synaptic pruning that has negative repercussions. And I think with aging, you see an increase often in that negative aspect of inflammation, which is why often in some of these diseases and disorders, you see inflammation as another byproduct. If you want to start at ground zero, uh, there's this old friends hypothesis that as you expose yourself to dirt and bacteria and, and and viruses growing up, playing out in the dirt, that that's good for you because your body builds up this natural 
immune system. And that's correct. And that when I, when I have, you know, my first toddler, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to throw them out in the garden and say, Hey, you want to go eat some ants? You want to go eat some dirt? Great. There's, there's nothing greater for an immune system than, than early exposure. But what you notice is over time, if you're not exposed to that, then your body doesn't have this uh, chance to become adapted to it. So that when you're 50 or 60 or 70 or 80, your response might be heightened to a similar stimuli. And that could carry negative consequences. In addition to that, when you look at neurodegenerative diseases, then there's this whole other aspect of does the inflammation cause the disease or does the disease cause more inflammation or do they Mm. go hand in hand? And I think that's an ongoing question. Or is it iterative? Right. And it could be in all of the above, but that's something that is actively being studied now. And you ask a neuroinflammation expert as to what whether or not there's an additive cause to Alzheimer's or Parkinson's or multiple sclerosis, we're probably going to say that it's certainly not helping, (laughs) if not a precursor entirely. Any sort of thoughts that you would have on positive aging, what we can do to keep our brains as healthy as possible as we age? Yeah, I think I think we've talked we've touched today on a lot of different topics on you know sex and aging and development and I think the important messages that I would want to send are it's important to look at life in general as a, a spectrum of decision making and development and it's not you're you not just young you're not just middle aged or old that it really is a continuum of behaviors and outcomes and exposures. And that aging, while it is a natural process, it is one that we do have some ability to uh, affect on a personal level. And that exercise, diet, staying cognitively active as young as possible for as long as possible is really some of the greatest boons in terms of longevity. But also when we talk about things like the neurodegenerative disease space and all the therapeutics that are being developed and all the changes that are being made, now, even once you do reach that age population, you have all these new tools and new uh, opportunities to keep yourself as healthy for as long a period as possible. Um, so I'm, I'm biased working for Life Molecular in that we get to aid people in the diagnostic process for neurodegenerative diseases, which really puts people in the power position for their own health care and their own um, communication with their doctors and, and, and access to therapies, things of that nature. I, I guess my advice would be for people to take on the tools of life and dig in the dirt when they're young and slow down inflammation as much as possible to some degree, but that once it's there, look look in the toolboxes that exist in science to uh, tackle healthcare in, in, in that aspect as well. Well, that's nice because it sounds very consistent with the approach that we've been promoting is your best bet is to be preventive and proactive to keep yourself as healthy as possible and to do the things that we know will reduce our risk factors and to the extent that we know them uh, amplify the the protective factors that we know about. Once stuff starts to go wrong, take full advantage of the advances in medicine and, and so on to stop things like inflammation so that they don't run wild because if all of those things are going to affect the, the health of your brain. We can't stop aging. We're not going to prevent death, but we can slow down the process and conceivably increase the quality of life that we can have for a longer period of time. 
that fair characterization? I think so. I think uh, <laughs> I, I think we have a choice: either get get busy living or get busy dying. And I think the more advantageous one is to get busy living, which means be as <laughs> proactive as possible because that's what's going to keep you in better health than being reactive. And once you're in the state where that really is your only option, is being reactive having an active communication with your doctors in the science space to make sure that you can slow natural uh, aging down as much as you can. Well, many thanks to Dr. Jeffrey Darling for taking the time to share his expertise and his unique perspective on living long and living well. You can learn more about MindRamp by going to our website at www mindramp.org that's m-i-n-d-r-a-m-p dot o-r-g and while you're on the website you can sign up for our newsletter called Roadmaps for a Successful Aging each week I offer a handful of new research reports on topics that enhance our understanding of how to keep our brains healthy and our minds sharp as we age take care 